Hey, everyone. If you like what we do, please give us a follow, a share, a rating, and a like on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. If you'd like to, consider supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadepopculture. That way, we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And we have a pretty interesting lineup of movies to talk about today. We've got reviews for Wish, Disney's 100th anniversary celebration. Leo, the new film from Netflix and Happy Madison production. And of course, we've got Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. We're going to start with probably the one that, while not speaking for everyone, I had the most expectations for. And that is Disney's Wish. Disney has not had a good year. And that's just putting in lightly. Because film quality wise, they've only had a few that have been generally well received, which would probably mostly be Elemental and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Not that they weren't losing a ton of money this year, but they lost a ton of money this year. I think someone accounted like maybe a total of a little over one billion dollars all i can hope for is that the animation department is not hurt or hit with layoffs because instead of Iger or any of the executives taking the fall it's going to be the people who are below them sadly so hoping for the best because i think a lot of people were really excited for this a film that represented the 100 years of disney animation Early impressions were very positive, and some early reviews that popped up were positive. But when it finally hit wide release, boy, did this film take a sharp turn in reception. You either liked it, were just kind of middle of the road on it, or you just hate this movie. And I dislike using a word like hate because it feels like a strong toxic implication of the overall film's quality but i think wish might be the most disappointing big budget u.s theatrical animated film of 2023 so far this is you know before we see migration which is like the last one but i was rooting for this and i still would love for it to do better but It is not picking up that elemental word of mouth. Sadly not. Like apparently it just reached over a hundred million dollars at the box office total. But of course, Disney not knowing how to flip and budget their films. This one costs about $200 million. So Mike, how about you tell us the plot for this one for the few that have probably yet to see this film? Okay, so we follow young Asha as she makes a wish so powerful that it's answered by a cosmic force, a little ball of boundless energy called Star. And with Star's help, Asha must save her kingdom from King Magnifico and prove that when the will of one courageous human connects with the magic of the stars, wondrous things can happen. Well, let's start with the most talked about 
part of this film, and that's the animation, or at the very least, one of the most talked about parts of the film. A lot of what Disney was hyping up through press and interviews were the fact that they were going with a new visual style for their films. Their CGI was going to have reminiscent visuals of old Disney films from the likes of Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. And when you see it on the big screen, you can absolutely see where they were going with these background and environmental pieces of animation. They look great. I love the texture work. It absolutely captures that Cinderella Sleeping Beauty time period of Disney animation. Oh yeah, agreed. The background work and all of the little details like that were just a complete piece for the eyes. They looked really good. But the problem for me, at the very least... I saw a preview of this at animation as film. I left it very positive about liking the visuals, but seeing it all in motion, like from it's very small 90 minutes, it felt like they just went with the backgrounds because the humans still look very much like their previous incarnations of human designs. So I wish they went just as far as they did with the backgrounds with the human designs because I love the texture work of the clothes, but they still move and animate like normal Disney CGI feature film characters. I don't know if it would have helped if they went with like the Spider-Verse Mutant Mayhem stylized look. But I know that's what a lot of people wanted. But it would have helped to make it all stand out more. Because, of course, early on when the trailers came out, people were like, this looks like that first pass render you do for a CGI film before all the texture work is implemented into the film itself. It also doesn't really help that I know one of the directors also worked on Frozen, so... There is a bit of a house style developing in this new era of Disney animation, but they could have diversified some of the character models. Because otherwise, my biggest problem with this movie is the pacing of it. I love the overall story idea of how wishes are used, how they are a part of you and not just a goal for every person in this film's world. I like that. It's a very cool, unique direction to take it. But it's like this film didn't really have time or could not go the distance with this implementation of this story idea. It felt like it was on a rush to get to every other distinct story beat. And... Like I said, it just felt like it was trying to get it, not like rushing to the end, but it was rushing to get to every song beat, and it just doesn't help that the cast for this film is not all that interesting, or not as memorable as I think they were going for. I love Magnifico, the villain. Very good 
return to traditional Disney villain dome. I also like how even when you first meet him, there is just something off about him. And it's very subtle, especially when they have that first song sequence with our main character and him together. If you look at how they're animated, interacting with the wishes, he interacts with them with kind of a disdain and disgust. He thinks he knows what's best for the kingdom and for everyone's wishes, all because he's paranoid about what one wish could do. But we got to the point where you find out that he's evil way too fast. I did not realize when I saw the preview how early on this was going to be. I agree with that. I think Chris Pine gives incredible performance, but I do think that the reveal that he's evil, it almost feels like an overcorrection between some of the twist villains that we've had over like the past 10, 15 years. They listened a little bit too closely to Disney fans who have complained about that and kind of cut right to, oh, I'm going to just tell you I'm evil like within the first five minutes. And I know a lot of people have mixed reactions to the music of this movie, but I like his villain song. If you can imagine every crummy boss who thinks, hey, why do you all need a raise? I got you pizza. Isn't that enough? This is the thanks I get? It works wonders. And I like the voice cast, but man, did we just have some of the most forgettable side characters of, I think, any Disney movie. Like, I don't care for half of these people. And that's not a good sign. They got a lot of good people behind it. Like we already mentioned, Chris Pine. Ariana DeBose plays Asha. They have Angelique Cabral, Victor Garber, Natasha Rothwell, Jennifer Kubiyama, Evan Peters, Harvey Gillen, Rami Youssef, Nico Vargas, Della Saba, John Rodinsky, and then like minor characters are played by like Keon Young, Lucas Spigler, w- Woody Buck, Holland Watkins, F.A., Nicole Evans, Nassim Pedrad, and Abraham Sigler, to name a few. But they made way too big of a cast. It's like they ran into the problem that Illumination runs into. Too big of a cast, none of the characters leave a very big impression. And the fact that this movie is only around 90 minutes gives a cast this large way too little time for any of them to develop a personality beyond archetypes. You don't really get an impression on anyone. I love their designs, but outside of Dahlia and Simon, no one really leaves a mark. Gabo is just kind of annoying, and I know that her friends are supposed to be symbolic of the Seven Dwarfs, but only like four of them, maybe, leave that kind of symbolic impression, like Safi, Gabo, and Dario, and Dahlia. I think those are the only ones that actually do that. I could not tell you a thing that makes Hal, Simon, or Bazima 
interesting. Well, Bazima has like the fun little like she just kind of pops in out of nowhere because she's so quiet. But it's a real wasted opportunity. But I would forgive all this if Valentino wasn't annoying. I love Alan Tudyk, and I got a little distracted that he was basically using his Harley Quinn Clayface voice. It's a great, funny voice. But what did Valentino add? He was more annoying, and it's like the film had to shove him in because it's a Disney film. They need a talking animal. But he was probably the most forgettable Disney side character since the cast from Home on the Range. Or the robot voiced by Martin Short from Treasure Planet. And that's a shame because Star, on the other hand, is probably the best character of the movie and probably has the best animation of the movie. He is adorable, charming, just a great design, and had the best comedic moments and expressions. Yeah, Star, I think, is probably one of my favorite silent Disney side characters since Carpet from Aladdin. And I could see in some sort of shared universe, both of these two just getting along instantly. They both have like that great comedic timing through just their body language that very few other characters could match. It's like they overcorrected by focusing so much on making sure King Magnifico was the reason you come back to this Disney movie. And yeah, it's just disappointing. And then we get to the song sequences. The score was composed by Dave Metzger with original songs written by Julia Michaels and Benjamin Rice. I have a lot of thoughts about the music. I think there are three really great songs while the others are, they range from like, okay to kind of good to, wait, why is this in here? And listen, not everyone can write like the previous folks who composed the music for like Frozen or the 90s movies. It's impossible to ask for someone who has not done music for our movies to be great right off the bat. On the other hand, if you're spending all this money, why don't you get some Broadway composers or get the Avenue Q team again to write music since they wrote the music for Frozen or anyone? Why did you get the person who is mostly known for writing pop songs for like Justin Bieber and Haley Steinfeld and Gwen Stefani? I think my problem with it is, like, these songs are really wordy, so they don't have a rhythm to them. Or you can't pick up on it, which is a really bad sign for your music, because Disney songs are supposed to be catchy, memorable, big. But maybe outside of the I Want song, and the Villain song, and the Rebellion song, there's not much else. I don't remember anything from Because You're a Star or some of the songs that felt like they were put in because they had to fill out the runtime. I can't take credit for this. One of our friends, Hayden, came up with an idea that sounds a lot better than 
well, than any of us could have come up with. To celebrate Disney's 100th anniversary, they would bring back, like, each of the previous composers and have them write, like, one or two songs. Like, you get one song from Alan Menken, a couple from the Lopez's, one from Richard Sherman, maybe one from Lin-Manuel Miranda. Something to make this feel more like an event than just another run-of-the-mill Disney film. And I think that's really the biggest problem with this movie. It just feels like another Disney movie. And I think also, why the wishing star? Is When You Wish Upon a Star the most popular one? I mean, I get it, but when I think of Disney as an identity, it's like Mickey Mouse, the princesses, Pixar, and then the wishing star. It's not really... The first thing I think of when it comes to Disney as a company, as a art-driven studio. And it's weird because I think Once Upon a Studio was a better celebration. Mm-hmm. And that's only like nine minutes or less. I forgot how long. But still, I'm not going to say this feels soulless. And I'm no. definitely no. not going to say this feels like it was written by AI. There are a few critics I like that kept using that to describe this movie and boy i lost a lot of respect for those people not just because i like this movie i'm kind of middle of the road on it but you're a critic you're supposed to be able to write how you feel about a movie just lazily writing this feels like it was written by ai it's so crummy and soulless would you like that if someone read your review And they said that, no, you wouldn't. Sorry, it's just like, I should be expecting more from critics now instead of just being the next hyperbolic, toxic, spewing crap machine. Like, I get it. It, There's a certain lack of self-awareness when critics lazily rely on that as a clutch instead of just speaking straight and saying why they don't like a work of art. Just say... The movie feels underdeveloped. That's all you have to say. Because that's how to describe this movie. It feels underdeveloped. And I think it's because Disney demanding that we get one or two movies a year. Along with one or two Pixar films a year. Budgeted at $200 million a pop. And that's not counting the rest of their movies that they spend a stupid amount of money on. Just doesn't work this should have been special and it's not and i feel bad for all the people who worked hard on this because you could tell a lot of people were very proud of all of this movie but disney is no longer the biggest fish in the pond and in a year where we've had mutant mayhem across the spider-verse barring all of the workplace condition fiascos with that one and in a wave of incredible foreign animation they need to let ideas cook they need to let creatives be creative and they need to stop acting like they're this family-friendly company unwilling to give people something interesting your movies are underperforming at the box office people are starting to be more aware and want something new and fresh like i have my thoughts on trolls band together But at least I see a lot of creativity 
from that movie within its visuals and world building. I can't really say the same for Wish, even though I like Wish more. That's where I kind of stand. I remember the first time I came out of the theater really liking this movie, but the more I've kind of let it sit with me, the more I really do wish that this movie had a bit more time in the oven. Because if you're going to prop this up as like the 100th anniversary celebration, it has to feel special. All of that pomp and circumstance has to have a movie to support it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And if you still haven't seen it for some reason, give it a watch. But, like, if you want to. But there are just movies out right now, as we are recording this, and that will be out on, like, physical release, that are just better movies. And I hope that the talented people who worked on this movie get to keep making more stuff, because there's obviously different sides of Disney that are willing to let some people be creative and some not, depending on the branch. It's time for Disney to let go of their restraints for a little bit. The last thing I'll say before we move on to our next topic is this isn't the first time that Disney has been maybe not at rock bottom, but not at the top of their game. That era between Walt's death and the start of the Disney renaissance was a bit of a rocky road for them. They had a rough patch after Fantasia flopped. Yep. And then the strike made them make all those anthology films. And then after Walt died, it was very hit and miss until it just stopped being hit. It was more miss. In the early 2000s, when... Companies like Blue Sky and DreamWorks were showing off that, hey, we can be more than what Disney is doing. So what needs to happen is Jennifer Lee and Pete Docter need to have a really hard talk with the executives and to tell them we need more time. We need to make these films feel special again and you need to let us take control of the production. Not a higher up, because there was that, who was it? Was it Zaslav or Iger who said the problem was that there weren't enough executives on the ground level? That was Iger. You see, that is the wrong takeaway from that. You don't need more executives there. You need less. You need to stop putting people who have no idea what they're doing in charge of how writers and animators tell these stories. That's all I have to say. I wish I liked Wish more. I think it's pretty okay, but it could have been so much better, which is shocking because everyone has had the exact opposite reaction to the new Netflix Adam Sandler animated feature, Leo. Mike, how about you tell us a little bit about this one? Okay, so Leo, directed by Robert... Mary Nettie, Robert Smigel, and David Wachenheim, with a screenplay written by Smigel, Adam Sandler, and Paul Sato. So Adam Sandler stars as Leo the Lizard, who has been stuck in the same Florida school for decades. When he learns he only has one year left to live, he plans to escape to freedom, but instead has to rescue his class from their 
horribly mean substitute teacher. Yeah, this is one of those movies I didn't necessarily have expectations for one way or another, especially because this is a Happy Madison production. And with all due respect to Adam Sandler, his Netflix era movies have been very hit or miss, to put it lightly. This is the second animated film from Animal Logic, the same studio that did last year's The Sea Beast and The Magician's Elephant from this year. And yeah, I was not super looking forward to this. I kind of thought Netflix's animated roster this year was very underwhelming because it was lacking a lot of surprises. Because we kind of knew Nimona and Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget were going to be their big films. So to have Leo pop in at the last second, well, not literally the last second, but it was not the most looked forward to animated feature. But then when word got out about it, people started to really like it. And... I won't say this is my favorite animated film of the year. It's probably in the very bottom of the top 20 of my year. But the more I rewatched it, I just really liked it. It had way more charm to it than a lot of Adam Sandler's films. And I think a lot of that is because of Robert Smigel, who was, I assume, mostly in charge of the scripts. Who knows? When they do that whole three directors, three writers. It's always like, who was in charge of what? But it was a real surprise. I'm not going to say it's like Netflix is the Emperor's New Groove or it's as good as Wish Dragon, but this might be Sandler's best movie on Netflix. And that's saying something. Because I don't know how a lot of people look at his output from Netflix, but Considering this has had the most positive reception to it, says something. That it really did hit a vibe that the audience was really enjoying. I'll say this is, I haven't seen all of Sandler's Netflix stuff outside of like, I think it was the Mayorit story that he did with Noah Bobbeck. But yeah, this is somewhere in between... Hotel Transylvania 1 and 2, which both Sandler and Smigel wrote the screenplays for those. I say that because while this one doesn't have the animation experience of Gendy Tartakovsky, there's still a lot of fun visual gags in here. Like, the one that I keep coming back to are the design of the kindergartners, who are just a bunch of rabid animals. Oh, those are great. I was not a fan of them at first because their designs looked so different from everyone else. But they grew on me because kindergartners are a little chaotic. Every time they came on screen, I just started laughing hysterically. I think what works about this movie and its writing and comedy is it finds a mostly good balance between sincere and heartfelt and just let's go a little buck wild with the comedy here. And I think this film is saved a lot from its mixed animation quality by the writing. I can't believe I'm saying this. I liked Adam Sandler and Bill Burr together. I thought they worked out very well. They kind of remind me of like men that my grandparents would know. They had that like, they're those like ride or die best friends or 
pair of uncles who have just like known each other forever. I think my favorite joke was when the teacher brought up they were going to read Charlotte's Web. Bill Burr's character, Squirtle, like Tortoise, was like, oh, great, we're going to get the waterworks early here. And then Leo goes and says, you know what the most frustrating part about this story is? They keep talking about this delicious spider and nobody eats her. <laughs> it's just, it's like, I don't know why, that made me laugh so hard. And then the payoff of that joke is even better. Just how they talk with, like, the other animals from the school. It feels so natural. And kudos to Sandler and the team behind this. They made the interactions with the kids and the adults and Sandler himself feel good. It's not just, we're putting on a performance. It's very natural because if you're a kid or a young adult that grew up with Adam Sandler movies, then... How cool is this? I get to act with Sandler. Like, just hang out with him and such. It's kind of cool how Sandler cast two of his children as Summer and Jada. Nepotism comments aside, they actually do a good job. Like, if I had to pinpoint the weakest performer here, it's Rob Schneider. That kind of goes without saying. I was thinking, how is this film going to balance out its comedy and its heartfelt message? Because... Sandler sometimes struggles with that with his movies or his productions where they try to feel sincere, but it's like you're not funny enough and you're not heartfelt enough to be worth taking seriously. And it just worked for a lot of times. I think the best parts were when Leo was talking with the individual kids, but then the humor, like they go places with some of the humor. Like when we learn about Jada's dad, voiced by Jason Alexander. They set up a whole musical sequence of him saying, I bought my daughter time so she can make it and be successful without, you know, the consequences and kind of messed up mentality that comes with how her dad thinks of her. But then they keep cutting away from it. And it's about to go into like these big Broadway sequences with like, dancing clocks and you think it's all just kind of visual imaginary stuff but then you find out that the clock people are real oh yeah (laughs) that was probably like the best joke and payoff that i've seen that they actually coexist in this world i love when musicals do that where things that you think are like part of like a musical fantasy but then the song ends and those guys are still there it's always hilarious if you want to watch this movie the reason why you would is because of Sandler, who is this old lizard, just talking with these kids and their insecurities. And it's really smart. Like, at first I was kind of dreading how these messages were going to come out, but they were better than you would think, because sometimes when Sandler tries to have social commentary with his movies, it's not always the best. It was just sweet. It's like, hey, I know you're worried about being perfect all the time but you don't need to be perfect all the time or you put on a a facade at school when you're not being the real you you keep hiding behind a mask like it's kind of pixar-ish in terms of how they tackle that yeah not like at that level but it's that mindset of like pixar does this let's try to do that and a lot of times There are very sweet moments 
I like that this movie was able to do all of this. Now, for like the musical numbers, I was kind of hit and miss with them. I don't think they're great. And then there was that kind of moment in time where kind of felt like they were, they wanted to be a serious musical, but then they wanted to punch at that trope of animated musicals. I mean, what did you think about it? I, for the most part, liked most, if not all of the musical numbers. I was just concerned at first that, like, I wasn't sure if this necessarily needed to be a musical. But then part of me remembers, wait, Smigel's is also Triumph. Talking dog puppet? Yeah. So, like, well, I don't think that side of him necessarily holds up. He's proven that he knows his way around a tune. That he was allowed to kind of stretch his musical chops, I think, was very commendable. Yeah. Like, another little sub-story I liked was Ellie, the kid who had, like, you know, helicopter parents, mm-hmm. metaphorically and literally with the drone, who is also voiced by Robert Smigel. The animation on that drone is great. I love when the drone gets the letter and he just throws himself in the <laughs> trash. <laughs> The physical comedy in this movie is great. Like, if Adam Sandler wants to do more animated films and do more physical comedy, why not team up with Robert Smigel and do some really out there and surreal or weird, like, animated comedies? I love the whole Mission Impossible breakout uh, out of Ellie's house. And then they do that whole sequence where Leo looks like Godzilla, even though he looks like old decrepit Godzilla who can't find his glasses and then steps on a Lego. <laughs> no matter how big or small you are, stepping on a Lego sucks. <laughs> yep. I genuinely wonder if this movie came about because Sandler just had such a good time working on the Hotel Transylvania movies that he wanted to make something for himself. I could absolutely see that. Now, another kind of good and bad story beat was with Miss Malkin, voiced by Cecily Strong, who I thought she did a good job with the character. I am not a fan of the third act conflict that we have to deal with with her because she can't deal with the fact that Leo is the reason why she is now going to be a permanent teacher instead of a substitute teacher. We'll get to that in a minute, but I do just have to first praise Cecily Strong's performance. And honestly, just the Schneider aside, pretty much the entire voice cast does a great job embodying these characters. Strong especially finds that right balance between stretching the comedy of the mean, cantankerous substitute teacher. But once she gets to interact with Leo you get to see the walls kind of breaking down and you get to actually get to know Miss Malkin as a person. This film does a good job with its characters and giving them enough depth to leave an impression on you. I wish Squirtle was a little more interesting instead of just being Bill Burr as a turtle, but he does redeem himself near the end. I just wish his character was a little more interesting. I get why Miss Malkin did what she did in the third act, but it was also like, really, 
despicable because you can't do that with animals because they've been caged up or, you know, house pets. You put them out in the wild, they're going to die. And I know that was the point. She took him to the Everglades. And luckily he was okay, but still. It's like, I don't know, I kind of hate seeing videos about that where people just straight up abandon animals out in the wild. It's like, I just don't like that story beat. I think the worst thing about that is that happens after her and Leo have kind of a bonding moment. A shift that doesn't quite work. That's what bothers me about the third act more than anything, that the conflict feels forced. There had to be some kind of conflict. And again, while I do appreciate that Mrs. Malkin became a bit more of a three-dimensional character, kind of hurts the flow of the narrative a bit, that she couldn't just be the straight-up villain. The third act is is probably the weakest part of the movie, but at least it ends on a stronger note. It does. Like, at first, and in my review, I'm just kind of like, it does this well, but it doesn't do this well. It does this well, it doesn't do this well. I was kind of like in the middle of it. But then with a couple of rewatches, I was like, you know, this is actually pretty good for what it is and what it sets out for it to do and what have you. So I will say my other minor criticism is I don't like the human designs. I get that maybe this entered production around the same time, assumedly, as the Magician's Elephant. And while I like the designs here, maybe a little more than that one, they still look fairly generic, at least for the kid designs. I wish there was, like, something a little more appealing or interesting to look at. Like I said, it makes up for a lot of it with the animation quality and the comedy so i'm not going to criticize it too much for that and who knows what the pipeline for this production was maybe they just didn't have time i looked at the concept art that was shown online for it and i like the 2d designs more 2d designs even in like the end credits those designs i really liked so i don't know i just think the humans look a little generic but it's a nitpick because the film succeeds in what it's trying to do. And there's a reason why it's, you know, as far as Netflix is telling us, a big hit for the service. If you've been on the fence about checking it out, I'd recommend it. I know Adam Sandler can be very hit and miss of his art and his shows and movies and whatever. This is one of the better ones, or at least that's what I think. Yeah, no, this one snuck up on me. I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did, and... While I do have my criticisms, I overall had a really good time with this. And if you are someone who really likes Adam Sandler, you should definitely check this one out. I think we saved the best for last. Because we are going to talk about Miyazaki's newest, maybe his last, I mean, who knows, movie with The Boy and the Herod. Which... Boy, I was super fortunate to see this when it came out at Animation is Film back in October. I was super fortunate that they decided to add a second screening to it because I wanted to see this movie like as soon as possible because there was no way I was going to go to the Toronto Film Festival or the New York Festival when, when I knew it was going to play at Animation is Film. 
But let's get started with the story. While the Second World War rages, the teenage Mahito, haunted by his mother's tragic death, is relocated from Tokyo to the serene rural home of his new stepmother, Natsuko, a woman who bears a striking resemblance to the boy's mother. As he tries to adjust, this strange new world grows even stranger following the appearance of a persistent gray heron who perplexes and bedevils Mahito, dubbing him the long-awaited one. Mike, with this movie, this, until otherwise, marks the literal end of the Ghibli journey. What did you think about overall before we dive into this movie? Overall, I'll get to my thoughts on the movie in a second, but ending my personal Ghibli journey with the boy and the heron, it just made it all worth it. And I don't know if this is going to be his last, because who knows what will happen between now and whenever he says he's got a new one coming arrives. But going under the assumption that this is his last, this is quite a high note to end a 40 plus year career on it's like this feels like a movie that he just laid everything on the line before we move on i want to talk about the title of the movie the boy and the heron i know a lot of people really wanted this movie to keep its japanese title of how do you live because it's more philosophical and fitting for a studio ghibli film because Again, Ghibli films are like the one Japanese animated film production that people who don't like anime and such will watch. The Boy and the Heron is apparently a reference to The King and the Mockingbird, the film that basically inspired Miyazaki heavily in his career. It makes a lot of sense because... The thing about Ghibli productions, when they're basing their movies on books, you kind of have to know the way they define an adaptation. It kind of takes the base idea, and then they just do what they want with it. It's not the book. It's their take on the book. So, barring that in mind, I don't really care about the debate about which title is better. What I do care about is the story that we got because we can't complain about a movie that maybe could have gotten what we hoped or wished or thought it was going to be. What we got is what we got. Even though I saw a ton of amazing movies at Animation as Film, this one was probably my favorite. Let's get the animation out of the way because it's like the, I don't want to sound dismissive. It's like the least interesting thing to talk about with this movie, but only because Studio Ghibli is so good at what they do. And I I know that they also got help from other studios from like Cloverworks. And I think I saw which studios in the credit and Studio 4C. I can probably assume what scenes Studio 4C worked on, which are probably the big, opening moments when the fire was blazing during the bomb raid in Tokyo. 
because of just how not rough in a negative way, but like how emotionally rough the visuals give off. It does kind of remind me a little bit of that scene in Tale of the Princess Kaguya, where Kaguya is like running and the animation gets all like distorted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because a lot of this movie, I know a lot of people love it. Most people love this movie. It's like one of the most acclaimed films of the year. Some people can't wrap their wrap their heads around the fact that you kind of have to go into this movie very with dream and fairy tale logic because it's not going to be direct. It's probably Miyazaki's most mentally complex movie about how our character is unable to move on and grieve or let go of the fact that his mom passed away because the world around him is telling him, how do you want to live your life? And throughout the interactions, Mahito is given a multitude of different viewpoints. Like the grand uncle voiced by Mark Hamill is saying, if you do what I do, you can live in a world without chaos and bloodshed and death. But Lady Himi and Kiriko, who are voiced by Karen Fukuhara and Florence Pugh, give him like, hey, you know what? Life is going to be rough, but life is worth living because of the ups and downs and all arounds. It reminds me a lot of Deep Sea in that regards, where the tunnel might be dark and the light is so far away, but you have to keep moving. You have to keep living because you will hit that light and the light will shine brighter amongst the darkness in your life. And there's just something so poetic about how this movie handles its story. Like, I know it's a semi-biographical film. Like, apparently, Miyazaki is represented by Mahiko. The Grey Heron is Suzuki. And the granduncle is supposed to be Isao Takahata. But that never really clicked with me. It clicked on a second time when I watched this movie. But I'd say semi-autobiographical. Take that term with a grain of salt. There isn't necessarily one correct reading of this film. It can be interpreted pretty much however you want. The themes about closure, about the five stages of grief, those are all still very present. It also just shows like how malice and hate corrupts someone. We see that when Mahito hurts himself because he was so full of like, hate and sadness because of the fact that he could not save his mother. But you see what happens when you go full malice with the Parakeet King, voiced by Dave Bautista. How he's just like, he couldn't make the Tower of Stones balance, so he just destroys his own world. You see that's like, yes, you really can't make a perfect world. And I don't mean that in a nihilistic everything sucks way the world itself and life is full of high points and low points and there's just going to be clashes of those two different kinds of points at times and you just have to 
keep on living in a philosophical way. You gotta, one of my favorite movie titles, The Night is Short, Walk On, Girl. So, exactly. And that's how I walked into to this movie, because I didn't know what exactly was going to happen or what was going, going on. But that's also because even though there's that whole misconception of, oh, Miyazaki didn't want marketing, which is a big fat lie. They literally had no money. They had enough money for a poster, and that was it. But of course, they were Studio Ghibli. They could get away with doing a poster and then raking in all the money. People are going to show up, especially locally. People are going to show up for a Hayao Miyazaki movie. Exactly. And just Studio Ghibli in general. I like the characters in this movie. I think this might be one of my favorite casts of characters and that goes from like i think mahito is a good male lead you can see that he's hurt inside but he puts on a brave face but he's not entirely stoic he just feels like this world is cruel and unusual i have to be brave to go through this lady hemi is loving nurturing and caring shoichi maki Mahito's dad is prideful, proud, confident. Natsuko is, well, very motherly and loving. The parakeet king is extremely prideful and proud of himself. Kiriko is stubborn, strong-willed, and takes no nonsense. And the granduncle is wise and not cynical of the world, but more like weary of the world like he knows that i could put mahito on this path but he needs to find his own way in life that's something that i really liked about his character like he knows his time is up and that he has to have a successor but it has to be mahito's decision nobody can force him to make that decision except for him like that's how i took a lot of these story beats from this movie but uh mike we've been talking a lot about the boy but i think we're missing someone okay i'm gonna build up to this but first i have to give credit to a couple of names so obviously we know that this movie was going to get a release in the states and they were going to do an english dub but i have to give a shout out to the director michael sinterniklas who directed the dub for NYAV Post, and Stephanie Shea, who wrote the English script. I think they did a great job of translating Miyazaki's screenplay here, but probably the best casting in any foreign language film for an English audience, Robert Pattinson as the Grey Heron. This casting and this character are so fascinating. The internet meme of Blank understood the assignment was made specifically for him. That's the thing about Robert Pattinson. He's a really good actor and he will dive into a role that he understood that the character is supposed to be this conniving, sort of lying, but has an underlying heart of gold under all that fluff character. And instead of just doing his normal voice... He saw that the character was this little chaotic goblin gremlin character. So 
he actually did what a lot of celebrities refuse to do. Act. And not just voice themselves. Instead of going like, oh, hello, given his normal suave tone of voice to the character, he literally saw what Masaki Suda, the Japanese voice for the Grey Heron, and was like, I gotta do that. So he sounds like a little gremlin, and it is probably by far and away the best performance of the movie because he was able to capture the stubborn cynicalness of the heron, but also like the small comedic moments of the personality of the character. And he did everything. Like, I love when the younger Kiriko asks, like, they say all gray herons lie. Is that true? And Mahito says, it's a lie. And the heron goes, it's the truth. And it does that little snork thing with his nose. And I just love that design of the gray heron. I love, like, this human design with the big nose. And, like, he's wearing a suit. I love the animation of, like, when you could see the eyes of, like, the more human head mm-hmm. and the nose. A lot of people, when, like, first images were coming up for this movie, were like, boy, that heron is going to give me nightmares <laughs> because of the eye and the nose meat coming out of the beak. If you were not prepared for, like, what the character actually looks like underneath the disguise, it is a bit of a jarring design at at first because you know the heron has like human teeth and that looks like another person just like swallowed up by the heron birds with teeth are terrifying design choices that's why you don't see it all the time they gave the parakeet king teeth but they gave him like sharp teeth and such and that's creepy even though the parakeets who are apparently all voiced by dan stevens are super dorky and adorable looking i love when ghibli and miyazaki movies do this where they like fill out a bunch of the space with the parakeets or like with creatures and such like the wara wara yeah yeah like the blobs from howl's moving castle when they're chasing down howl and lead from that movie or even the like like the wave monsters from ponyo yeah exactly it's interesting how people think miyazaki is only good at strong characters and environmental anti-war stuff. His animation also lends itself to a lot of really good comedy. I love when the gray heron gets that little hole in his beak fixed, and then he's just like, ha so long, sucker. But then he's like, oh, okay, the thing that filled up my beak is irritating and annoying me. So it cuts to Mahito having to like slowly shave off the cork thing. And you see the character like, okay, that, that smooth it out right there, please. <laughs> and it was probably the biggest laugh everyone got out of both of my screenings for this movie. And the other big laugh was when uh, Mahito and Himi exit the door. By the way, cool transition. I love that. Door floating among the mountain. Then it converts to the tower outside of Mahito's home and uh, Soichi just runs at Mahito and Himi thinking like they were whoever 
Hebe was was stealing him and he was just like going to take her down or take whatever down and when he's like trying to slice through the parakeets and then he's just like I think Mahito got turned into a bird <laughs> oh yeah that was a cool transition and the visual gags and even just like the verbal comedy like the buddy comedy between Mahito and the heron just delightful and Listen, I know a lot of people, when they saw the design of the Heron, wanted Danny DeVito to voice him. And listen, I like Danny DeVito. I think he could be a very good and very entertaining actor. I also think it would have been hugely distracting. Sometimes people are like, put Danny DeVito in it because I want the meme nature of it. And I just think that's a really terrible way of looking at movie casting. Like, we could talk about the whole dissonance with how much were these celebrities paid compared to the voice actors in previous G Kids dubs. But I think casting needs to make sense. I don't want someone casted because the internet said so. Casting for these movies, it has to be in service of the bigger picture. We've seen what happens when the internet gets their way. Do you all still talk about It Chapter 2 very positively? No, you don't. I like the cast for this one. Luca Padavan, like, is very good as Mahito. I think he captures a boy going through things. Of course, we talked about Robert Pattinson. Karen Fukuhara is very charming and, well, we are a fan of hers because we've seen her in She-Ra and the Princess of Power as Glimmer. And Kipo and Age of Wonder Beasts as Kipo. Yep. She's also going to be in the Pokemon Concierge series and playing the main character. Christian Bale, a fun thing about this movie was it brought back a couple of Ghibli veteran voices. So they, of course, brought back Christian Bale to play Mahito's dad. But what was interesting is because the Japanese dub did this. Because Takuya Kimura was the voice of Hal. That's actually really cool. And then, of course, Mark Hamill has done, like, maybe totaling now three dubs for Ghibli. One as this, like, this side king character, and then the main villain from Castle in the Sky. Dan Stevens, what have you had to say about Earwig and the Witch? I thought he was the best part about that movie next to the other English cast that they got. And then they got, like, Florence Pugh, and we know she was going to be a good voice actor because of you know her experience with Puss in Boots The Last Wish. Yep. I was very surprised by Dave Bautista. Like I think we have to get over the notion that like he was a wrestler. I... That's not who he is anymore. He is a good actor. Probably one of the better wrestler turned actors out there. I stopped thinking of him as a wrestler ever since his small role in Blade Runner 2049 when he was playing a guy. Since then, I think he personally has gone out of his way to work with top shelf talent so that he can like really stretch his acting chops. And yeah, his role as the Parakeet King, very well done. Gimachan as Natsuko, like maybe not the strongest character of the bunch, but Gemma-chan did do a good job of making her feel loving and bring that conflict of like, oh, I don't like you, Mahito, because 
I know I'm not your mom and I don't want you near me because you bring vitriol and hate to me trying to give a new life. But Gamachan has had voice work experience with like Namari from Raya and the Last Dragon and Watership Down and Revolting Rhymes from way back in 2016. I don't know if any of y'all saw that special Revolting Grimes. It's really good. There's also Willem Dafoe. He also, of course, was in Tales from Earthsea. And he plays the minor role of the noble pelican. He does a good job, but I wish there was a little more to the character. But, I mean, what were you going to do? The pelican was dying and he was just telling Mahito that life is cruel because we were taken here and there's no fish for us to eat, so we have to survive. There's also, like, a bit of a small environmental message about, like, you know, don't freaking overfish. I don't know. Do you think Miyazaki hates birds? (laughs) I don't know what to think anymore. (laughs) Because I know he likes pigs, but it's interesting how we have the noble pelican, the parakeets, the parakeet king, and the heron, and they are just vastly different in terms of tone and characteristics. But that was like a comment I saw a few times was, does Miyazaki have something against birds? <laughs> Which is weird. He's such a fan of like flying, but I don't know. It's it's weird whatever his opinion is on birds, but it is just kind of funny how in this movie we get such a vast variety of different types of birds with different personalities. Exactly. Right, right. And it also could just be like the heron is a homage to the king and the mockingbird. And the mockingbird was kind of a punk. <laughs> uh, I want to watch that movie again. I, I hope it gets like some kind of criterion release or something. Oh, it absolutely deserves a criterion release or, or just any sort of physical media. Yeah, exactly. To get back to the animation, I just love the character animation. Like, the strongest part of, like, really good animators is if you took the sound out, you could understand who the characters are by their expressions and movements. I think a good example of this is when they have the old lady housekeepers. Like, at first I thought that was, like, a reference to, like, the Seven Dwarfs. I mean, like, I don't think that's true. And who knows, it might be. And I just didn't find out about it. You see their movements, and you can tell who they are as people just by how they walk. The animation is just a lot of fun. A lot of great background scenery. A lot of dreamlike worlds. And Miyazaki and Ghibli just know how to make good-looking food. (laughs) I wanted some of that fish stew, even though... I don't know if I want to even touch that fish that they caught. (laughs) I don't know, maybe I'd have a better chance with the canned meat that they brought in that suitcase. (laughs) Even like that piece of toast with like the slathering of butter and jam looked appetizing. God, that was a lot of butter and jam. (laughs) I was like, that's a little too much, but I'd probably like it. (laughs) One thing I noticed about Miyazaki is whenever he, he tries to avoid negative space in the frame, not to like a distracting extent, but there's always going to be something interesting happening in either the background or in the foreground yeah it's not like how takahata handles like memories and only yesterday or something where there is a touch of negative space around the frame 
here, there's always going to be something there. And even down to the very last shot, when Mahito leaves the room, the green tree, it's a visual of a brighter future for Mahito. There's this one scene I really love. It's a really small bit at the very end, right before they leave the crumbling tower. Where, spoilers, by the way, I mean, this is going to be out, I think, past the theatrical run for this movie, but still. You find out that Lady Himi is going to be Mahito's mom. And Mahito is like, but if you go back through there, you're going to die in the fire. And Lady Himi is just like, I will, but I had such a great life and I am so proud about who you became. And, oh God, that hit me hard. <laughs> like when I saw it back in October and when I saw it today, like I was with my dad and we were at a cafe after that, before we went on to our second film of the last day, I talked to him about that scene and he would tell you, I was crying a little, like thinking about that scene, about that strong bond between Mahito and his mom. Like, I just love this movie, man. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, it's just so good. And maybe if I give it more time, I don't know if I like it more than Castle in the Sky and Spirited Away or Porco Rosso, but it's up there. It's probably top five Ghibli films. Yeah. At least for me. Like, the thing about having a top five Ghibli films is you're going to get a different answer every time. So... Yeah, that's the thing. There is no wrong answer. Yeah, The Boy of the Heron could be anywhere in the top five. I may need to see it a few more times to really solidify its placement, but I can only say with certainty that this is probably the best movie that I've seen so far this year. And I know there's still a few more that I need to catch, but I think The Boy and the Heron is a masterpiece. And... One last discussion that I want to have, because because there is this sort of reading of the Grand Uncle as a stand-in for, like, either Takahata or or just, like, maybe one of the other higher-ups. I think they said it was supposed to represent Takahata. And, and anyway, the second time I saw this movie, I was really kind of focused on what lies ahead for the future of Studio Ghibli, because I would hate if this ends up being Miyazaki's last film, that that Studio Ghibli... I would hate for this to be just, like, the end of Studio Ghibli, if it's if it's the end of Miyazaki's career. Um, what, do, what do you think about that? It's... They were ready. Even, like, when you watch The NeverEnding Man, you can tell that... When Miyazaki said, I wanted Toshio Suzuki was making sure he knew that what that was going to entail and what could possibly happen if he passes away. I would be happy if this is his last film. And if he wants to make another one, it sounds like he's going to make another one. Then so be it. <laughs> he's going to, even when he's like six feet under, he's going to rise from the grave and be like, I got a new story idea. <laughs> <laughs> but joking aside, I think it's a high note to end on for Ghibli and Miyazaki as a whole. Even if I am going to be sad that this is probably his last hurrah as a director. 
I know some people are going to are mixed on this movie, but I feel like people are going to love this movie more as time goes on. Because honestly, this felt more like a Disney movie than a lot of recent Disney movies. Like, and nothing against the animators. I know this is not a competition, and I am always going to root for every studio to put out their put their best foot forward. But this movie is so ethereal to me just how it connects with me how i read its thematic elements how i watch its story unfold and the animation unwrap around me and there's just nothing quite like a ghibli movie just the fact i got to see this multiple times in theaters is just something special exactly Um, like when are you ever going to see, like, outside of the Ghibli Fathom event re-releases, when are you ever going to see a brand new Ghibli film on the big screen? Like, it's an event, which is why people love it so much, why it's doing so well at the box office right now. It's because it's special. No matter how you think about it, it's healthy that a film like this is doing well. And why so many other like franchises are flopping or underperforming and such. It's because I saw this from, I think, in the Kingdoms of Madness. I think that's what the documentary is called. That's about Studio Ghibli. Miyazaki said, our goal is to make a good movie. The studio may not last forever, but we are going to keep making good movies. Even if this is like the end of Studio Ghibli, I hope what this movie inspires is a new generation of animators to to bring their vision to life. I hate saying like to inspire the next Studio Ghibli, but this doesn't have to be like the end all be all. There can be other places to go to have to create people as talented as Miyazaki, as Isao Takahata, as any other talent that came from this legendary animation studio go see it or at the very least go buy it on blu-ray or go see it when g kids does their ghibli's yearly re-releases and such just go see it man this is why i like movies it's movies like this where i'm like this is why people make movies (laughs) exactly now that's really all i have to say and it was a great time talking about this movie i'm so happy everyone is now finally being able to see it And next time, we were going to do the State of Adult Animation episode, but we're going to delay that because next time we're going to talk about Merry Little Batman and one of my favorite films of the year, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nuggets. Definitely looking forward to that one. But until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Cam's Eye View. I have a website called campsiview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. You can also find my reviews and editorials on camstheothersideofanimation.wordpress.com if you want to see them there as well. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash campsiview. That's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on various social media at captaink 42 you can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash coachk42. 
And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and that place at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on YouTube, on Podchaser. Support our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadepopculture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. In escape, so do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.